0: I'm Laura London, and this is a special video edition of Speaking of Young. Joining us today for episode 128 is Jungian analyst Linda Carter in Carpentria, California. After completing her undergraduate work at Georgetown University, she went on to attend the Child and Family Mental Health Program at Yale, earning a Master of Science in Nursing. She trained as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute, Boston, and worked in private practice in New England for 35 years. Currently, she practices in Carpentria, where she also taught in the doctorate program at Pacifica Graduate Institute until 2020. She has been a visiting analyst at the C.G. Young Institutes of Los Angeles and Boston, and for the last six years has been involved in the IAAP Router Program in China as a supervisor, examiner, analyst, and teacher. Linda also trained as a Sandplay therapist with Edith Solwald, is the founder and chair of the Art and Psyche Working Group, and continues to receive training in psychopharmacology. For five years, she worked as U.S. Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Analytical Psychology, spending three years as their book review editor and four years as their film and culture editor. Along with her husband, fellow Jungian analyst, and our December guest, Dr. Joseph Cambrai, she is co-editor of the book Analytical Psychology, Contemporary Perspectives in Jungian Analysis, and co-author of the chapter Analytic Methods. Linda is the recipient of two Gradiva Awards, one in 2019 in the Art category for Exhibition for the Illuminated Imagination, the Art of C.G. Jung, and the other in 2021 in the Digital Media category for Art in a Time of Global Crisis, Interconnection and Companionship. Last year, she was nominated for Best Article for Amazing Grace, published in Jung Journal and presented at the Art, Psyche, and the Creative Imagination program in Limerick. She has contributed essays for two volumes of Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Jung as Craftsman in Volume 3, and Going the Full Circle, Pattern Resonance from Microcosmic Interactions to Macrocosmic Amplifications in Volume 5, which she presented at the 2022 Arinos Conference, Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Searching for Soul in the 21st Century. Next month, Linda will be presenting her paper, The Combination Method, Use of Ketamine as an Adjunct to Analytic Treatment, along with physician and fellow Jungian analyst Joseph McFadden at the joint IAAP-Pacifica Graduate Institute Conference, Psychedelics and Individuation, Conversations with Jungian Analysts, to be held December 15th through the 17th on campus in Santa Barbara, California, and also live-streamed. The presentations will be published in the book, Psychedelics and Individuation, Essays by Jungian Analysts. Co-edited by episode 113 guest Leslie Stein and published by Chiron. This episode is made possible by Temenos Dream, the revolutionary new dream recording app available for iOS and Android. Having trouble remembering your dreams? Now you can record them as soon as you wake up by speaking into your phone or typing them into the app. Keep your dreams organized, search the built in symbol dictionary, and have AI illustrate your dreams, all within the app. Download it and create a free account today by clicking on the link in the description box below or on our website, speakingofjung.com, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This video interview is being recorded on Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. Through the Magic of StreamYard. Thank you so much for joining us today, Linda. I'm very happy to be here, Laura. Thank you for having me. So we're here today to discuss your essay that you've contributed to this forthcoming book from Chiron on psychedelics. And before we get to that, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit of your background. You trained as a nurse. (coughs) and you have a master's degree in nursing, and you still practice as a nurse, but you're also a Jungian analyst. Well, for me,
1: those things are sort of interwoven. I see myself as always having practiced nursing. Mm -hmm. Nursing and Jungian analysis kind of go together for me, Mm. and nursing goes way back in my family. My mother was a nurse who graduated from nursing school in 1945. My grandmother was a nurse who... Graduated from nursing school, the same nursing school as my mother, in
0: 1919. In and, 1919? Yeah.
1: Wow. And Nana Mick was uh, a nursing student during the Spanish flu pan- pandemic. Oh. And she almost got expelled from nursing school at the time because she tagged the body wrong. And it went to the wrong house. And in those days... The viewings took place in the front parlor of people's homes. Mm -hmm. And I guess what happened was when they opened the pine box, it wasn't Uncle Joe. So Nana was in a lot of trouble. And sadly, the only story that I really have about her experiences as a nurse is that one that the family Mm -hmm. kind of laughed about, but it really isn't a funny story. No, And I'm sure that she was probably pretty traumatized by her experience because in 1919, Bodies were piled up on the streets. There weren't mm. people to bury them. It was really horrific, a horrific time. It was also at the end of the First World War and so yeah. So anyway, my mother and grandmother were nurses. My sister-in-law is also a nurse. All three of them went to the same nursing school in Camden, New Jersey, across the river from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And Camden is now, or unless I read several years ago, it's seen as the most dangerous city in the US, sadly. Mm. It's really very sad but in any case my uh my grandparents grandparents settled in camden from germany Uh, my grandfather's grandfather had a farm there and so forth and i grew up in a small town next door called collingswood and uh, my father was a physician who had a family practice on the main street in collingswood And his hospital was the same hospital, West Jersey, in Camden, where my mother, grandmother, and sister-in-law were nursing students. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of a long line. So I always wanted to be a nurse from the time I was a small girl. Mm -hmm. And nursing has been very, very good to me Mm -hmm. uh, because I was in nursing school in 1972 to 76. And, of course, that was the time of the women's movement. Um, was really burgeoning. And in my nursing school class at Georgetown, we had kind of regular kids out of high school like me, but there was a a whole sort of cohort who came in um, who were older and they were interested in women's health. Mm -hmm. And so that really added a lot to our class, I think, and a lot for me uh, in terms of learning and other kinds of experiences and so forth. And Georgetown was quite progressive. So we learned not just hospital nursing, but also about public health, Mm -hmm. large group kinds of projects and thinking that way. Kellogg uh, funded a special project at Georgetown, bringing together uh, nurses, doctors in the community, as well as medical and nursing students. And I was part of that group. And our our job, our task was to develop guidelines for the first HMOs in the Washington Mm -hmm. DC area that then were manifested. Mm-hmm. So I was really lucky in that sense. And each summer, um, as, well, I started working in the same hospital as my fam- that my family was affiliated with when I was 16. So I had done a lot of hospital work very early on as a nurse's aide, and then during summers in college. So that uh, when I finished Georgetown, I went directly to uh, Yale for a graduate degree. And I'd gotten interested in human genetics and thought that would be an interesting area for nurses. And at that point, the nurse practitioner movement was really coming into being. And the program at Yale was for nurse practitioners in psychiatry. Um, So I applied for that because I thought if I learned those kinds of psychological skills, I could use them in genetic counseling. So mm-hmm. when I was at Yale, I did this uh, psych training, but I also was in the genetics department at Yale. They offered me a job when I graduated, but mm. I by then I got really interested in analytically oriented work. And so I decided not to follow that line. But uh, yeah, so genetics was also a part, and I just supervised a case this week. A Chinese person had a, a kid in her practice, who had a genetic illness. So it's it that the whole science thing continues to interest me. Mm-hmm. And for any of you, we could talk about this more later. It has to do with an ongoing interest in origins, genetic, theological, philosophical, and that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's
1: a long-winded answer. But I, you know, I, I practice on my nursing license. Um, the American Nurses Association has a special certification that's nationally recognized for nurses in what's called the expanded role. So it's for nurse practitioners, or I'm called a nurse clinical specialist in psych mental health. And I've had uh, dual credentialing, both as an adult practitioner, but also for uh, children, adolescents, and families. So I practice on my nursing license. So I've never, ever left nursing. That's the ground. hmm lot of ways and so and also the theory theory was big at georgetown it was the self-care theory which is very interesting and it was all about self-agency or the patient's uh capability for acting on their own behalf
0: Mm. and that's
1: very resonant in many ways with uh, Jungian ideas of individuation
0: yeah yeah
1: So, so anyway that's that's a long story but uh I don't differentiate those. I was a nurse, and then I wasn't a nurse, and now I'm this. I'm very proud of being a nurse, and it's important to Mm -hmm. me.
0: So when you got your master's degree in nursing from Yale, that that allowed you to do what? To do research?
1: Oh, no. I was trained as a a psychotherapist
0: at Yale. The master of science in nursing. Yes, yes. Was training as a psychotherapist. Okay. Yes.
1: Yes. And that was a brand new program when I got there. Okay. And they had gotten special funding to run it. But uh, during the summer before I arrived, the lady who was to run the program for whatever reasons left. And so the thing sort of fell apart. And there were only two of us in the program. We got complete federal funding, by the way. Hmm. Room, board tuition and a stipend I mean, it's unheard of now Mm -hmm. it's federally funded so i'm very grateful for that but uh they quickly put together a program for us and so we took all the adult psych classes because they didn't quite know what to do with us and then they kept adding in more and more child psych classes Mm -hmm. and our placement was at the yale child study center which is uh, world renowned uh, psychoanalytically oriented treatment of children and families going way back to Anna Freud and so forth. So
0: mm.
1: I, I feel like that training was absolutely excellent about becoming a child therapist and an adult therapist as well.
0: Does that program still exist at Yale? The child, the child
1: and adolescent program. I'm not sure Laura, to tell you the truth. It's worth mm-hmm. looking into.
0: Mm-hmm. And so your training as a psychotherapist was as a nurse. I'm just I had not heard that before, but it it's not psychiatric nursing, or is it?
1: Well yeah. Yeah. Um, psychiatric mental health, it's both. Okay. Mental health, psychiatric. So yes, I mean we're how I'm not sure how you're thinking about psychiatric nursing.
0: Are you well, thinking about
1: inpatient kind of thing? Or? Yeah,
0: I, I think so. And not the Hmm. I just I, I had never spoken with a psychiatric nurse before, so I wasn't aware of what kind of training went into that.
1: Well, there, there are a number of us practicing as psychotherapists. There are many nurses who've gotten uh, social work degrees, um, master's in, like me, psych mental health. Like BU has always had a psych mental health master's degree. There are a number of master's degree programs. Case Western had programs to train nurses as psychotherapists in, within nursing.
0: Within nursing. Okay.
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 But I did run, I did work in psych hospitals after I graduated. Um, and I, early, early, in my Chris, 28, uh, I ran a new uh, psychiatric unit for children at Mass uh, University of Massachusetts in Worcester mm-hmm. for a few years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I supervised uh, the mental health workers and the nurses and was a member of the diagnostic team for kids and, and families.
0: So what were you able to do or what are you able to do as a psychiatric nurse that say psychotherapists who don't have that degree, what what they, they can't do, were you able to prescribe medication?
1: I Yes, I, I could. I took, I've taken all the coursework to be able to prescribe Um but I never went for the DEA licensure Mm -hmm. because I really didn't want to practice psychopharmacology. I didn't want people calling me at midnight for, because their Prozac prescription had run out and stuff like that. But um, I, you know, I really wanted to practice as a psychotherapist union analyst, but I felt like knowing psychopharmacology was, is extremely important. And I guess, let's see maybe 30 years ago or more, uh, a friend of mine had gotten her PhD in nursing and she uh, was part of a women's uh, reproductive mental health collaborative in Wellesley, Massachusetts called the Hestia Group. Hmm. And they were doing a lot of psychopharm. They did get the DEA license and they were both providing psychotherapy and, uh, and prescribing medications. Mm-hmm. And so I called Jean, who was a colleague, Jean Driscoll, who was a colleague, I, I was friendly, but I didn't know her that well, mm-hmm. and said, you know, could I call you every once in a while if I have Sego Farm co- questions and you can run the meter and I'll send you a check. And she said, oh, she said, I heard you finished that Jungarian program. Mm. <laughs> and she said, we're interested in dreams. Could we get together for peer supervision once a month. So we did that for about 25 years till I moved wow. here. And it was a great trade. I mean, they were very good psychotherapists as well as good pharmacologists. So uh, we would talk about pharmacology, clinical practice, and then uh, they would ask me about dreams. And we would play with their dreams, with their patients' dreams, and look at those together collaboratively.
0: Mm-hmm. So at what point did you begin training to become a Jungian analyst and, and why did you decide to do that?
1: Well, I was finishing up at Yale in 1978 and um, kind of a long story, but I, <laughs> I got into a lady at the mental health center where I was placed in addition to child study uh, who kind of looked like me and we bumped into each other at a luncheonette, and she asked me if I had a boyfriend. I said, no, not at the moment. And she sent me on a blind date with her son, mm-hmm. and he arrived. And I used to have red hair. You can't see that now. But anyway, he kind of looked like me too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had this date that was intense. And um, that, the night that we had the date, his mother was at her interview applying as a union analyst and his mother and father were divorced, his father had become a Jungian analyst. And so I was at the, uh, after this date, I was at the computer center. And in those days we had to punch, do punch cards. Yeah. Now I'm a terrible typist. I mean, you can't imagine how awful and frustrating that was. You make one error and it kicks out your stack and you have to wait in line. Took hours and hours because you'd have to wait your turn. So uh, a friend of mine from my class was there we were sitting on the floor waiting and I told her about this crazy situation with this date and this guy who kind of looked like me and it was very weird and she said oh he's your animus and I said what? Um. So tell me more and she began telling me these stories. She was in union analysis and uh, with a nurse who was a union analyst Mm. uh, Martha Harrell. I don't know if she's still practicing and Um, I was fascinated by it, and I'd always been interested, as I said, in genetics and, you know, Um, where things began. And this, uh, it seemed right away I could get a hit that there was a sort of spiritual dimension. And I had felt in my training at Yale in the the more psychoanalytically oriented program, which, by the way, I'm very grateful for, but really religion at that time and spirituality those were seen as kind of just defensive mm. and problematic. So I didn't really say much about that. And I felt like I had to uh, keep quiet about a very important part of my life and my being and what I felt would be healing for me and other people. Right. So meeting her, that whole experience sort of opened a whole other door to young. And then I moved to Boston and worked in uh, community mental health. And um, what, what, what happened with the guy? everybody asked that question. Um, you know, it was an intense moment, but I also knew that it wasn't going to be a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. And oddly through the years, I had patients who knew the guy and I would kind of mm-hmm. hear about him every once in a while oh. in a completely different part of the country, you know? Okay. Um, and he did well and I did well. I don't have any regrets about that, but mm-hmm. I, I take it for what it was. It was a flash moment that was life changing. Right. Life-changing, right. grateful. Um, so I decided that when I went to Boston, I would go into Jungian analysis with a woman because okay. I did treatment with a man when I was in, in graduate school. And so I did that. And that was sort of that began the path.
0: You became interested that way. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. You were practicing as a psychotherapist and then the, the whole time, and then you trained to become a Jungian analyst, and you became a Jungian analyst. And so, how did that change the way you practiced?
1: Well, that's sort of a complicated question. Uh, it's hard to explain that because my practice has evolved and changed over the last 45 years in a lot of different ways right Mm -hmm. Um, the training program in boston uh, at that time the analysts had been trained during the 70s in zurich
0: Mm -hmm. and so it
1: was a very sort of traditional program they weren't interested in what's called the developmental models they were not interested in psychoanalysis They were not particularly interested in transference and Hmm. countertransference. And that was a problem for me because that was my background. Yeah. And also as a nurse, I was interested in pharmacology. They weren't interested in that particularly. So, um, and I had a very strong clinical foundation. And I saw the analyst at that time, except for one guy, really, They weren't really very clinically grounded, and I Mm -hmm. thought that was problematic, actually. So I realized I could get a lot from them in certain ways and not in other ways. So I was just quiet about a lot of my interests Mm. in a different direction. At Yale, I couldn't talk about spirituality, religion, and so forth and so on. In training in Boston, I couldn't talk about psychoanalysis clinical practice pharmacology Fine. and that kind of thing but i knew that i there was an international community i knew that the london group was interested it, it, it was seen as the developmental school started by michael fordham in the 40s 50s um, they were much more clinically oriented and so during my training my husband and i both became affiliated with the journal of analytical psychology which is is was the foremost clinical journal, Jungian Journal, and and much more grounded in the things that were interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So, the Boston training helped in a lot of ways. I learned, um, I learned about you know anthropology and different world religions and that kind of thing. It was, very, it was valuable in that sense. But I think with any program, you know, they talk about commencement. I mean commencement graduate school, undergraduate, a Jungian training program. It means you begin to learn. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In the last few years that I feel that I'm really synthesizing these different. Mm.
0: It's interesting. You mentioned that because I, in college, I studied psychoneuropharmacology Uh, and uh, I was very, uh, very into that. And, um, I have a science background and a uh, concentration in neuroscience. And then, and I worked in research in a research hospital in nuclear medicine and I did all of that, but something was missing. Right. <laughs> so I began analysis with the union and it opened up this whole new world to me. And I've been down that path and as far as which I'd like to get into here soon, um, you okay? Let, let's just talk about this mm-hmm. using pharmaceuticals or psychedelics. I mean, I'd like to ask you about the difference between the two. Uh, is it's not used in Jungian analysis. And I prior to analysis, I had been through all that because that was the thing to do back then uh, in the let's see, the early nineties, the mid nineties, the late nineties, I can't even remember um, to medicate yourself to take for just for neurotic issues or kind of everyday things um, to take antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. And I did all that. And I don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that attracted me to Jungian analysis is that they don't pathologize, they don't medicate. And so that's why I'm very curious about how you work Mm -hmm. and how you use, I I don't know what word to use, substances, drugs, I don't know what words to use. As a Jungian analyst, I find this very interesting. And so I'd like to understand more about that. And um, so let's start. Do you prescribe antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication um, while you're... So people come to you for Jungian analysis, right?
1: Yes, but I've always had a general practice where people come to me for Jungian analysis, but also because they especially in Providence, I, I had a big practice. I was very, very busy there. Um, I was just sort of known as a good psychotherapist. So I had people from all walks of life, okay. not necessarily seeking me out as a Jungian, but who got interested in it because I would offer some thoughts that were Jungian thoughts and some. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I see medicines as can be enormously helpful and life-changing and i see i'm specifically interested in ketamine i'd like to define that that's the uh, yeah i'm interested in use of psychedelics in general but specifically ketamine that's what i've been focused on but I, i'm interested in ketamine psychedelics of all kinds as pharmaceuticals for therapeutic purposes okay
0: not, not for recreational,
1: areas. not for recreation, not for seeking soul. I am not interested in that, and I can say more about that in a moment. But y- you asked a number of complicated questions there. Um, first, psychopharmac- psychopharmacology is enormously helpful, is enormously helpful. There was a trend, you know, um listening to Prozac when Peter Kramer wrote that book and so forth. And he used to exercise next to me at the gym in Providence. He was in Providence, nice guy. And then he wrote a book maybe 10 years ago uh, called something about depression. I'm blocked on the name of it at the moment. But he did a very smart thing. He looked at a number of different studies on antidepressants and their efficacy and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, so on. and so he did an across-the-board perspective. And what he talked about was the value of antidepressants. And the research has been clear for years. Uh, For someone who is profoundly depressed, the combination of both psychotherapy and psychopharmacology are better than either one alone. That's always stood up to research over Mm -hmm. time, right? It's very important to think about that. Also, a good diagnosis is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And what I found in my training with the Jungians then, back then, that's not necessarily the case now, right? People come back from Zurich, but uh, they weren't well-trained clinicians and they didn't understand psychiatric diagnosis. So you can get into the weeds with people on archetypes and dreams. And if you don't know, you haven't clearly diagnosed a psychopathology, that's a big problem. Or I supervise a Chinese group and you know I've had a couple cases of autistic children. Mm -hmm. Doing sand trays. Well, Mm -hmm. they're all robots and stuff. (laughs) I mean, they need to be more engaged with these kids than sitting back watching a sand tray being built. You see what I mean? Yeah. So if you don't have a good diagnosis, you don't really know what you're treating or what you're doing. So it's always important to have on balance both a person's suffering, their pain, their wounds, their trauma, their family history, their psychiatric illness. On balance, with their creativity, their talent, their curiosity, you know, all of those things. So, I think it's um, it's a balancing act all mm-hmm. the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so back to Peter Kramer, though, um, what he came up with was that uh, that really antidepressants uh, can be neuroprotective, neuroprotective, because if the more depressions you have. more depressions you're going to have it's similar to uh seizure disorders where you have one seizure it's not medicated you have a kindling effect it increases the risk of having more seizures and more seizures the same is true with depressions you have a depression unmedicated another depression another and they can be longer and deeper and more difficult so that's the argument in the in the uh in the conversation for using antidepressant medications. Now, uh, when Peter Kramer came out with the first book, he did write about the problem of people wanting to be weller than well. Mm. And I think that's coming up now with the psychedelic thing. Okay. You know, some guy who runs a ketamine clinic proudly told me he's treated 1,200 people in the last two years. And I said, well, what have you treated? Mm -hmm. He's not a psychiatrist. What have you treated? And what are your outcomes? What's the efficacy? They're durability problems that we can get into in a minute. But I said you need to do research. Who are the people coming in? Who are the people you're putting out? How are they? One month, six months, twelve months.
0: Right.
1: What what happens to those people? Do they just want a trip? Or, you know, they right. what does that mean? See, I'm really, I don't like that. I'm not in agreement with it at all. So, back to what you were saying about the 90s and so forth with different medications.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And and I'll give you an example. I had a psychotherapist who got me from the Yellow Pages. This is a long time ago. I still see this lady. We laugh about it. (laughs) Psychotherapist herself. She came in the door. She was young then. And she told me the Yellow Pages said, You know, you're lucky you got me. I said, That's a really bad idea. (laughs) Don't go to the Yellow Pages for a psychotherapist. Oh, anyway. We worked well together. She had terrible anxiety, terrible, terrible anxiety. Wanted to travel, couldn't travel. She'd have panic attacks. I said, I think you should try an SSRI, antidepressant, at higher levels, doses. They're very good for anxiety. People with OCD, you not everybody, for responders, if they take OCD, their uh, OCD can improve greatly, greatly. So those folks are tortured. So this lady, I had her for five years, didn't want to take any medicines. And I never push that. I feel that it's up to the person. Okay. And I don't prescribe, as I said. So I re- I would refer them to the Hestia group, for example, in Wellesley. They treated a lot of oh, my patients. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all retired, so they're not there anymore. Right. I, you know, so I had a good working collaborative relationship Whenever one of my patients is using any kind of ph- psychopharmacology, I have ongoing phone conversations and now emails to some degree with a treating ph- pharmacologist that the patient's aware of and assigned releases for so that we're a team, building a team around the patient to help them get better with their suffering. So different-
0: si- since you don't prescribe, you need to refer them to To whom? To a psychiatrist, okay, or
1: or to a or to a nurse practitioner who has prescribing ability. Okay, but a problem that I see though is a lot mm-hmm. of psychotherapists, not just unions, uh, they're not tuned in enough to uh, the pharmacology. So the Chinese group I met with on Monday, we were talking about this. That you know, I said when you have a patient on any kind of medicine, you should look up so you know what the medicine is. You're going to see the patient weekly. The pharmacologist is only going to see him monthly, every six weeks. Right. So it's important that the therapist, even though they're not a prescriber, have some sense of side effects. You see, it's really important.
0: So that that is, t- to me, so those are some of the issues, side effects, and also can't stay on it for life. So coming- you
1: know, Some people do, and some people need to.
0: And then what are the side effects from staying on something for life? Exactly.
1: Exactly. I want to hold, put a hold on that for a minute. Okay. Background. The lady who came to me through the Yellow Pages. Yeah. She would episodically, you know, get into her panic attack thing. And I would say maybe some medicine. Finally, after five years, mm-hmm. she went and see, saw a colleague in Wellesley. Within a week, her anxiety went like this. That was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And to this day,
0: she says, I don't know why I waited for five years. So I I would say, <laughs> of, of course, her anxiety went down with the medication, right? So does she have to keep taking the medication? And also, what about, so was she, she was working with you. Were you working out what was causing the anxiety? Yes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and so are you? Mm -hmm. but let's
1: be clear about a couple of things. One is that uh, their genetic lines back to genetics. I mean, her father has a horrific anxiety disorder. Her brother has a horrific worse than hers much, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: almost debilitating. So she has a biological set for anxiety. And, you know, this goes back to the old uh, diabetes and insulin question. So somebody has diabetes, their parents have diabetes. I mean, do you tell them they shouldn't take insulin for a lifetime? No, no. She has a biological set for it, and she needs the, this the medicine that she takes.
0: Okay, so w- what kind of work do you do in analysis? Um, well, yeah, so on, for you, Yeah, please, yeah. W- what, what sort of work do you do when a patient's being medicated are they conscious enough about their symptoms to do that work? Or why would they even continue psychotherapy or psychoanalysis if their symptoms are being relieved by the medication is what I'm curious about.
1: I guess I wonder why you think that the medication would, are you thinking that the medication would dampen their access to other parts of themselves i' I'm,
0: I'm wondering i'm i'm <laughs> asking what your experience is I'm yes, curious no,
1: no that's not my experience my experience okay. is for medicines if, in the case we're speaking of mm-hmm. the anxious lady um it, it frees people up to do the the analytic psychotherapeutic work okay if someone's so anxious that, that they're having panic, panic attacks, it's very difficult to explore the other parts of their internal worlds, outer relationships, so forth and so on. They're trapped in terrible suffering that's unremitting and uncomfortable mm-hmm. and gets in the way internally and externally. So with some of those things quieted, and I can say more about that in terms of ketamine too, people are more accessible for psychotherapy more accessible for their internal world more accessible for relationships without getting into overwhelming states
0: so does it depend on the you no know, what word do you use do you use drug do you use no. pharmaceutical
1: no i say medicines
0: medicine okay so to me, just, to me
1: drugs sounds like uh, illicit drugs instead of licit drugs okay okay so i'd say medicines medicine I mean, for some Pharmaceuticals; these are used, um, like we go back to Asclepius in ancient Greece. Like, what are the healing? There are many many healing elements: the arts of all kinds, physical exercise, music, uh, painting. Uh, uh, at the Temple of Epidorus, Asclepius's temple, hot mineral springs, dreams—all of those things are healing elements. Are healing. Right, medicines, and they used herbal tinctures and so forth so you know these kinds of chemical things can be enormously helpful but they're one part of a whole armamentarium of things that may help people
0: so for me when I think of those healing practices that you mentioned of mineral springs and massage and uh, Mm -hmm. more let's say more natural uh, modalities they don't have, let's say, drumming and music. They don't have the side effects that ingesting um, a a pharmaceutical medication would have. So I'm wondering, um, I, I, I totally lost my train of thought. I don't remember what we were talking about before that, but I'm just curious as to you're saying that someone has anxiety, they take a medicine, it relieves the anxiety and they're able to do the work in psychotherapy or psychoanalysis yeah. that they, you have access, more, better access yeah. to them. Yeah. And I'm wondering what kind of, what is happening to them biologically, biochemically, and what does it matter that I think what I'm really wondering is let's take something like alcohol. Mm -hmm. If you have a couple of drinks, you're not going to go into a therapy session after you've had a couple of glasses of wine Mm -hmm. because you're affected by it, Mm -hmm. right? It's done something to you cognitively. Mm -hmm. So why is it different with the medications? I'm, I'm honestly curious why I'm not challenging you. I, I want to know why is it different with the medications that you're talking about?
1: Well, the medications I'm talking about, like primarily SSRIs, things like, you know, Prozac, Zola, those kinds of things. Um, they're not going to, they're not mind altering in a way that the psychedelics are. They're not disrupting cognition. In fact, usually they help cognition because they decrease anxiety. If you decrease anxiety, somebody's better able to think. So, for example, when somebody's depressed or they're highly anxious, cortisol is running through the body. Mm -hmm. It's running through the body. And when you have that constantly going and there's not the rest state when you're not fearful, anxious, or upset... So. Always hyper aroused, and it doesn't come back to normal. That eventually burns out the dendrites in the hippocampus. The hippocampus is the seat of um, cognitive explicit thinking. So then you begin to get gaps in memory. It's the hippocampus is the seat of memory. You get gaps. So in the eighties, nineties, there are all these things about traumatized young women false memory syndrome, and they would have gaps in the, in their memories about what had happened to them with their abusers and so forth. And mm-hmm. so they were the therapists they were seeing were accused of putting ideas in their minds. Well, what was probably happening was they had these memory gaps because they'd had these ongoing cortisol levels that never went down that burned out the dendrites in the neurons. And so they had lost, they had gaps in their memory systems. Now, if you calm the system down, those dendrites regenerate. If you do it chronically, you can't regenerate them. So the idea would be that if you offer the SSRI antidepressants, for example, there are many different kinds of antidepressants besides SSRIs. Right. And it's not one thing doesn't work for everybody. But mm-hmm. you calm that down, then it gives the the, the the dendrites a chance to regenerate and you can protect your memory that was peter kramer's idea about being neuroprotective, neuroprotective. Mm-hmm. so yeah I, I don't know i mean i don't think that it, the medicines i'm talking about that these medicines have been around a long time now so we've been able to look at the long-term effects on people and mm-hmm. generally they've been pretty helpful
0: mm-hmm.
1: now yeah the problem is that there are 30% with SSRIs are responders, or antidepressants in general, 30% are responders, 30% are non-responders, 30% get a placebo effect. Okay. If somebody's profoundly depressed, I tell them, I said, well, you know, it's maybe worth a try because you got 60% when you add in the placebo, but it may not help. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. That's where kept, yeah, go ahead.
0: Is that, that's what I was going to ask you, is that when you would turn to ketamine? Yeah. And so let's talk about ketamine. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the essay that you've contributed with Dr. McFadden to this upcoming book um, that they're doing a conference at Pacifica Graduate Institute uh, next month in December. There'll be all the information you need in the show notes for this episode at speakingofyoung.com. And your research on ketamine, um, you will be presenting at the conference and then all the essays uh, that are presented will be published in this book. Uh, I was given an advanced copy and I've read the entire 400 page book and I've been tweeting quotes from it. It is absolutely fascinating. All the essays are written by Jungian analysts and uh, your chapter is on ketamine. So let's start with For the listeners who are not familiar, what is ketamine?
1: Ketamine uh, is an anesthetic, actually, that's been used in surgical procedures for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is now being used. A question that my partner, Joe McFadden, and I have had, it's uh, a dissociative anesthetic, which is very interesting. So our question when we started talking about it was, if it's a dissociative anesthetic, why are we thinking of using it for traumatized people who dissociate? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a really important question. Mm-hmm. And we got interested in ketamine uh, during COVID. We, Joe and I were meeting once a week for peer supervision because we are both interested in Jungian analysis, and bringing that together with psychoanalysis and neuroscience. And we're also both interested in pharmacology, the pros and cons, as you noted, side effects, the efficacy problems, and so forth and so on. So we wanted to, we're working together because we had a lot in common. So we had these patients who were profoundly depressed. And uh, I guess a couple of his patients, he had sent them for ketamine and i had a patient his psychiatrist whom i've written about about arthur his psychiatrist had recommended ketamine and so i read a book called the ketamine papers and then joe and i got really interested in this question of ketamine we did a lot of reading and that's this main question why give a dissociative anesthetic to people who are dissociating yeah so i think it's really really important This medicine is very helpful and important for people who are suffering terribly with PTSD, who can't get out of the ruminative thinking, they're miserable, they're they're really suffering. People who are profoundly depressed and that sort of thing. I think it's an incredible aid, an incredible aid. Uh, But the question of dissociation is uh, highly relevant. So shall I go ahead and answer that? Yes, please, yes. Great. So um, we, we began to read not just the pharmacology literature, but also looking to uh, psychoanalytic literature and Jungian literature and so forth and so on. So what we noticed clinically was that one of Joe's patients in particular, uh, things settled down for her so much and she was plagued by uh, memories of an abusive parent, mm-hmm. right? And so we got interested in Ferenczi, who was a contemporary of Jung and Freud's. Mm-hmm. He was interested in mutual analysis, and he was the one who coined the idea, identification with the aggressor, right? And so what we noticed, uh, and by the way, when we would talk about our cases, I took really comprehensive notes Mm -hmm. clinical work so what we noticed was that the ketamine seemed to calm down uh, the internal aggressor that was oppressing her right and seemed to free her her up for connecting with other what we call self-state experiences that were healthier stronger and so forth so what we came up with was that ketamine seems to anesthetize uh, the aggressor. It it anesthetizes the trauma complex is what we've called it Mm -hmm. and relativizes it in such a way that these other internal figures can come forward. And it's been dramatic what we've been able to see with that. And Mm -hmm. it's freed up the analyses to be able to strengthen these other parts that can create kind of a scaffolding around the trauma complex. The trauma complex will never go away, Mm -hmm. but the intensity of it can be attenuated Mm -hmm. so that it's more livable. Mm
0: -hmm. And so you've noticed that ketamine uh, will have an effect on patients that were not responding to other medicines. Yes.
1: Yes. They were not responding to other medicines. Mm-hmm.
0: And so what I'm curious about, um, because I don't know, uh, why is ketamine classified as a as a psychedelic?
1: Well, because it has psychedelic effects. It's not a set psychedelic per se. It's a different class. Yeah. It's
0: not a psychedelic per se,
1: but it does have psychedelic effects called psycholeptic effects, meaning hallucinations, visual, perceptual colors and movement and all kinds of wild things can happen. At at clinical doses? Yes, yeah. And some of the pharmaceutical researchers have been working on trying to get rid of the psychedelic effects so that it just treats the depression, for example.
0: So chemically, they're trying to to alter it chemically?
1: Yeah, but Uh, I'd argue against it. I think that that the psychedelic experiences there's a way of connecting to kind of a collective unconscious experience or a numinous experience. I think that's a valuable part of the healing aspect.
0: So would this be, would these patients not be able to access this? Is this basically what you're saying? These patients would not be able to access these parts of their own psyche without the help of these medicines?
1: Well, that's a very complicated question. I think that the trauma complex in these patients or the weightedness of profound depression so takes up the psyche that it's really not possible to get connected within it's, it's really not possible or extremely difficult to do.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and, Well, I, I was just wondering if uh, work as a Jungian analyst uh, for if- one 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 was to work with somebody analytically, they still would not be able to penetrate what you were referring to as if you have a genetic propensity for certain mm-hmm. conditions that no amount of analysis would be able to shift that?
1: Well, I, that I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think you never know. I mean, I think okay. I've had patients who have had profound depressions and I think analysis has and and extreme trauma, analysis has shifted those things over time. Mm -hmm. But in small, you know, in dealing with with trauma in small increments over time, I think let's just look at people who are traumatized. Usually, traumatized people are also quite depressed and also anxious, right? Yeah. So they have a constellation of things that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And very often, traumatized people get into what we call the dog chasing its tail complex, where they keep going round and round and they keep go, ruminatively going back to the scene of the crime. Yeah. You know, like what happened with my father? What happened with my father? Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, and as a therapist and analyst, it's very important to go back to the scene of the crime, feel into it with the patient with empathy, and do it in very small quanti- quantities over time, like mm-hmm. Pharmacon. The thing that's the poison is also the healing. Small amounts of the suffering within an empathic relationship that can be contained, then the suffering falls into a life narrative and it no longer is overpowering. That can happen without medicine a lot of the time. It can't always. And so for people who are overwhelmed and they're trapped in this, um, going back to the scene of the crime over and over again, I think is re traumatizing it further instantiates in the brain those pathological neural neural circuits. And that's a problem. So, for example, if you're always, if you go to a traditional reductive analysis, that if you go back to the original trauma, make it conscious, then you're healed. It doesn't really work. And always going back to that, I think, just re-traumatizes. I don't think it's helpful or useful, right? So... Um, The other thing that happens is um, there's something in the brain called the default mode network. And the default mode network is seen as the seat of uh, creativity. It's the seat of mind wandering, daydreaming. And the default mode network functions best when the person is at rest, not doing anything. And the default mode network, how that operates, it's similar to how the brain is operating during free play and during REM sleep. That's my next area that I'm into. That's really interesting to me. Yeah. Now, when you're online, you're texting, you're uh, focused attention, that's the task positive network. And now we're also involved in that. um, When that is happening. It shuts down the default mode network. So that's a big problem. That's a really big problem. I could say a whole lot about that. but Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, You you mentioned that in the article, in the essay. uh, And you asked the question, are psychedelics becoming a medicinal treatment for too much focused work and thinking and not enough play? Because you point out the diminishment of free play. What is free play?
1: Free play is not supervised. Let's talk about with children. Yeah. Right? Uh, in 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a position paper about the global diminishment of free play. Mm. It's a tragedy, it's horrible. There was just a radio program on NPR a couple of days ago. A researcher at Boston College is researching free play, saying the exact same thing. So this is popping up all over the place. Um, free play is, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Not supervised by adults. Not lessons. Not sports.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not directed. Not do this, this, and this. Open time. With some yeah. constraints, In a, you need a safe and open space. Sure. Kids playing with each other, negotiating with each other, fighting with each other without parents intervening, mm-hmm. making up rules themselves, not directed from above. It helps with self-agency. Otherwise, we're creating kids who are dependent on somebody to tell them what to do all the time. That's not a good thing. And it kills creativity. It's not a good thing.
0: Does it also apply to adults? Oh, a lack of question without question. Yeah. We're all squeezed out of free
1: time. I mean, a lot of people, God forbid, COVID was horrible, but a lot of people liked it because they had free time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not on the computer, not focused, just imagining, going for walks, being in the natural world. Yeah, Poems don't come to me when I'm like doing this. They come to me when I'm walking on the beach. Right. You know, but- not thinking about anything.
0: Yeah. So I really thought this was very interesting, your question, are psychedelics becoming a medicinal treatment for the fact that we are too focused, the work we do is too focused and too structured, and we need an escape from it. And so psychedelics, uh, and this book deals with lots of different psychedelics and Uh, analysts from different countries have contributed to this book um, that is that, is that why people want this escape? And what, what, is it the answer?
1: No, I don't think it's the answer. Okay. I really don't think it's the answer. I just raised that as a hypothesis. I'm Mm -hmm. curious about it that, you know, after COVID lockdown where people did have some more free time and so forth it feels like things have ramped up at an even higher pitch and higher yes, level. I agree. Um, but also we're in a world in turmoil with wars, every horrific war situations everywhere that are disrupting everyone. I mean, we are always and forever surrounded by concentric circles of influence, you know, from our dyadic relationships with partners, family, community, world, the infinite God, whatever you want to call it, we're always influenced by all those variables. But now we know all these horrific things that are happening. Yeah. I mean, in some ways we're too interconnected yeah. It's hard to escape from the trauma. We're living in a world of trauma. And so I think rather than looking for natural forms, you were kind of hitting at this earlier, mm-hmm. like um, relaxation, massage, walks the arts of all kinds yes you know just having fun laughing being silly goofing around playing games cooking together i mean right. there's wonderful thing we all get takeout you know we're not cooking and yeah. playing Yeah. so i think then i'm, I'm worried and wonder is then we're uh, we're globally traumatized and we're ratcheted up again we have no so are people then feeling anxious and depressed and going to a quick fix, like I'm going to do a psychedelic trip tonight. But you know, I don't know what that does long-term. Right. And what happens
0: you and that was another question I had is what happens when you come down off of these things? So for instance, with ketamine, do you, is this a regular treatment? Well, ketamine is complicated. Um, Could I say
1: one more thing about the default mode network? Yes, yes, please. um, When somebody's traumatized, the default mode network is way too active, way too active, right? Um, And so that closes out its creative capability. It closes out its creative capability. Ketamine, one important hypothesis that's being researched, and Mm -hmm. they're using animal studies now, Um, it calms down the default mode network. Now, that's really interesting, right? So if the default mode network is calmed down and you're not getting all into the um, attentional network, then it opens the possibilities for creative thinking, mind-wandering, and a different experience of oneself, right? That's really interesting to me. Also, ketamine works on the GABA system which helps mm. um, helps with synaptogenesis, generating synaptic connections, whereas the SSRIs, for example, they work on norepinephrine and serotonin, and the efficacy with those is problematic. As I said, it's thirty yeah. percent. So it's interesting to think about the GABA system being treated, mm. and so that that's valuable from a neuroscience view, but it's also valuable clinically. Okay. So ketamine, um, it hits the GABA system. It helps for uh, connectedness in the neural circuitry. And it shifts things. uh, uh, So it calms the default mode network from being hyper aroused in a certain sense. It calms it down. And then it's better able to connect with other networks in the brain so that gives people a feeling of belonging connectedness calm and it can give a feel, a mystical feeling a feeling of oneness mm-hmm. so even after the first ketamine session people who have been on the ceiling afterwards come out with a sense of belonging not just to other individual loved ones like in attachment but a belonging to the universe. And I've heard that over and over again.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That to me is very interesting because it begins to bump into Jung's ideas about the collective unconscious, the universal, the religious function of the psyche, so forth and so on. Now, do I think people should be running to ketamine to get that? Absolutely not. I think we need to look at needs for community, belonging, how do we foster that? How do we generate it? How can we do that without ketamine?
0: And that's very difficult. And ketamine, just taking ketamine, a lot easier. Well, it is and it isn't. First of all,
1: it's very expensive. It's like there are ketamine places popping up like mushrooms, so to speak, which I think it's highly I didn't know that. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think it's because a lot of these people think they can make money on it and they can. Like a doctor friend of mine said, like ketamine is very cheap to produce. But usually, those sessions are about $400 for one session out of pocket. So, who can pay for it?
0: So, is it something that you want to do again once you do it? You want to do it again? again? The problem is ketamine, it's
1: highly effective, for example, with suicidal patients. Somebody's suicidal, a dose of ketamine session, they're not feeling suicidal. So, Joe McFadden and I attended. a yearly program that Harvard has at the Mass General Hospital. I think there's one that's just happened last week or next, week. I didn't have time to go to it this year. Mm-hmm. But it was fascinating to hear them talk about ketamine. So they, they were, probably are still, using ketamine as a front line for suicidal patients in the ER and in their psych- psychiatric units, right? So pretty quickly, those people stopped feeling s- suicidal. A huge problem with ketamine that needs to get looked at is its durability. Mm-hmm. Those effects of diminishing the suicidality may last two weeks or a month. Then they need another infusion. Yeah. So then the person shows up in the ER again, you're back into the circuit. And a doctor from Mass General last year said, you know, the problem is we see people get better, but, you know, they become frequent flyers. And we don't have a way to continue the treatment in the community providers or a, a, an affordable way to do
0: it. Well, that's difficult. That presents a difficulty and a huge problem from, from my experience with the SSRIs is that, and, and from other people I knew that they would eventually stop working or your dose would need to be increased and then it just went on and on. And if it stops working and you're not doing the inner work, then what? You're, I think you're, that's a very good question. You just jumped the the, the physician would put you on it. Let's change your medication. So, like I went through all this. I have friends that went through all this. You try one, it makes you feel fantastic, and then it stops working. Oh, I need more your dose gets upped. Then it stops working. You need to change medication. So if you're not doing the accompanying inner work, and I would like to point out again, the title of your essay is The Combination Method, Mm -hmm. Use of Ketamine as an Adjunct to Analytic Treatment. So
1: So I would say that all these things, all these medicines that you're talking about, yes, that's true for a lot of people. They crap out after a while, or you have Mm -hmm. to change, I mean, all those things happen. They have problematic side effects, sexual side Yes. And some people, they're better off coming off them or reducing. I mean, but I think that all of those, the medicines, in my mind, should be seen as an adjunct to ongoing depth-oriented work. Yeah. And I think that, uh, Alan Shore, the neuroscience guy, has written extensively about how human relationship changes the brain. Mm. Changes the brain. Yeah. So neurobiology and Dan Siegel in his book, The Developing Mind, that's a wonderful book. So, you know, the mind changes by being in relationship with other people. Mm. I I also think it extends to being in nature, being with animals. There's a lot of research on, you know, how having a pet, makes a difference in people's lives, psychologically, mm-hmm. emotionally, and probably neurobiologically as well. Yeah. So, and working things through, titrating small doses of trauma, um, collaboration, looking at dreams, looking at healthy aspects, shoring those up, all of that is really important. So to me, ketamine should be used within the context of an ongoing attachment relationship in psychotherapy.
0: I have a question about Jung uh, because there were some rumors about whether or not he dabbled in mescaline. I've heard both that he did and he didn't. So what do you know of Jung's view on psychedelics? Well,
1: I don't know anything about him actually getting involved in any kind of psychedelics directly himself, okay. mescaline. But when I did, I did some research on this when Joe and I were uh, first starting on the ketamine stuff a while back. And I looked at it again the other day. And there is a letter in 1954, uh, in the Jung letters to Victor White, Father mm-hmm. White. And uh, Father White had asked something about mes- mescaline. And at that time, Jung said, uh, is LSD? Oh, Father White was talking about LSD, and Jung said, "Is LSD the same as mescaline?" He didn't even know, mm-hmm. and so he was very curious about it. But he admitted to knowing far too little about it. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Then I only know there is no point in wishing to know more of the collective unconscious than one get, than one gets through dreams and intuition." And then he said something that I found really interesting. He cites Goethe, right? And the story of the sorcerer's apprentice. And in that story, and Jung quotes this, uh, the apprentice who lets out, who uses magic when the master is away and then can't control it, the apprentice says, "I cannot rid, get rid of the spirits I bid." Now that's very interesting. Jung quotes that. Yeah. And let's think that that is connected to Fantasia, Walt Disney's Fantasia, right? And the original story that Goethe gets his story from and that Fantasia comes out of is from a a Greek legend called The Lover of Lies, written in 150 AD, Mm by a man named Lucian, right? So this story of the Sorcerer's Apprentice has been around for a long time. And when I was thinking about that, I thought, well, I mean, what are the genies we're letting out of the bottle with all this psychedelic stuff? And Jung goes on in this letter to Father White and talks about his concerns of the lack of responsibility for the researchers in LSD. Now, not all LSD researchers then or now were irresponsible, but he was concerned about that. And then at that time he said, it's quite awful that the alienists, which is what psychiatrists were called then, have caught hold of a new poison to play with without the faintest knowledge of feeling responsibility. It is as if a surgeon had never learned further than to cut open his patient's belly and to leave things there. When one gets to know the unconscious contents, one should know how to deal with them. I can only hope that the doctors will will feed themselves thoroughly with mescaline, the alkaloid of divine grace, so that they learn for themselves its marvelous effects. And there are a number of other citations where he also talks about the problem he sees is that people can dip into the collective unconscious, but then fail to integrate it with the conscious personality. And there are several other letters and von Franz cites the same thing. I had the same concern and that is exactly why we're talking about the com- combination method that these things can be used therapeutically for medicinal purposes within the context of psychotherapeutic practice or analytic practice. Mm-hmm. So the danger is letting these things out. Then what? I mean, yeah. what do you do with them?
0: Yeah. I was uh, listening to a program that I listen to regularly on the topic of UFOs and UAPs and the host has just had enough of this lack of evidence and everything's a story. It's just one person's Mm -hmm. account of their experience. And he's wondering about what hmm, if one were to dabble in a number of things. I mean, a, a, a pharmaceutical, a drug, drug, you know, a street drug, a psychedelic. What is the, what is the lasting effect that it has on the psyche? Are some of these things that people claim to have experienced a result of that? Is that possible? Yeah, it could be
1: you know, who knows? That's certainly a possibility.
0: Right. And so when we're not doing this with, uh, when people are not taking these substances in under any kind of supervision or doing any kind of inner work, then it's all about what? It's all about something other than them. And that's my concern.
1: Well, and it's also... Maybe momentary relief, like drinking too much or smoking a lot of pot. I yeah. Mean, pot and alcohol are not benign. There are right. a lot of problems that come out of that. You know, I mean, I've had patients who smoke pot and they have a bipolar tendency and they become manic and psychotic and end up in the hospital. So I think, you know, a great question needs to be used with any substance, whether it's, you know, Prozac or any uh, psychopharmacological prescription prescribed medicine has side effects, psychedelics, any of those things can be problematic. Mm -hmm. I think that he, at that time, he he too quickly shut down the possibilities of mescaline or those things as possibly therapeutic uh, that could be researched under careful, thoughtful conditions. In other words, lots of substances have come into being, like penicillin. Mm -hmm is a mole that was accidentally discovered or lithium was a natural salt in water that was discovered to be highly mm-hmm. beneficial. I mean, lithium is really, really helpful for people who are bipolar, it's mm-hmm. life saving, life saving. So those things are sort of discovered and they're worth researching and same with mescaline, you know, uh, psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, they're all worth and important to look into in careful, cautious, responsible ways. I think they're so. I think he may have shut down too quickly on the possibilities. Maybe he felt threatened or some in some way, or he just didn't know enough, or he wasn't that interested. I don't know. But on the other hand, I completely agree with his ideas that you don't want to let the genie out of the bottle. It needs to be that, needs to be carefully considered. And, um, and integrated integration. And a lot of these ketamine places offer integration counseling. And I looked into that. It's like deep breathing. I mean, deep breathing does help. It slows down the heart, slow down the heart. It slows down the brain. You get executive function back. Yes. Okay. So that's helpful. And then you can integrate thinking and feeling. Okay. All good. But it's just, you know, it's a fly by night kind of thing. It's stuff that we've all kind of know already really right they don't have a depth orientation and they're not working on and nor they should they be unpacking historical trauma and life problems and dreams that's not what they do Mm -hmm. so they call it integration counseling but jung's talking about integration of unconscious material as it naturally emerges Mm -hmm. Working with a therapist to help integrate it with conscious life. So Jung, in 1916, the ancestors came to his door. He saw yeah. ghosts. He had visions. He faced the infinite, and in order to cope with it, he put constraints on it by creating his first mandala, Systema Munditodius, as a containing image. He wrote the Seven Sermons to the Dead, where he f- first wrote about the tension of opposites. So he used the acts of writing drawing the first mandala. Those acts were containing functions, but he said all of his work to follow began there. So it came from the infinite there, and then he developed his theories. But so after the break with Freud, he was during the facing of the unconscious, 1912 until about 28 or so, he stopped working on the Red Book, which was an active imagination project, he started teaching again. He started lecturing and he started more serious work on the collective collected works. He started work on alchemy. He started working on bowling and so forth. So he came back into the world mm. into this whole yeah. age, right? Without drugs, without, yeah. help, and don't forget without the very important help of Tony Wolf and Emma, he wasn't really alone helpers real his family you know he he went back into the world so the idea of having these kinds of experiences whether on your own um whether with uh psychedelics or ketamine or something like that you have to figure out how to integrate it into your whole personality and enter the world again excellent
0: so well put thank you so much linda pleasure my pleasure thank you laura Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com for more information on everything discussed in this episode and to access all of our previous episodes available to stream or download for free. Speaking of Young is also available on YouTube podcasts, which you can access by subscribing to our channel, Youngie and Laura. It's free. Just click the subscribe button below. This podcast is made possible by the revolutionary new dream recording app, Temenos Dream. Discover the hidden meaning of your dreams using symbolism, literature, and mythology. Use the built-in AI Illustrator and share your dreams, all within the app. Download it by clicking on the link on the episode page or in the description box below and create a free account today. I created Speaking of Jung eight years ago as a free podcast. All of our content is still free to access, but it is not free to produce. Please visit the support page on our website at speakingofyoung.com/support to help keep this podcast alive. Thank you to our recurring donors John Temple, Ralph Gotzelman, Eric Hoops, Doreen Gordon, Mark Johnson, and Brian McMichael for their ongoing generosity and support for this podcast. With special thanks to Leslie Stein, Stephen Buser, and Jennifer Fitzgerald at Chiron Publications. I am Laura London. And you've been watching a very special video edition of Speaking of Young.